0: Back to Behind the Splinters, a limited series interview podcast about the making of Sci-Fi's 12 Monkeys. This is Beep. In just a moment, you'll hear Cece and I speaking with the showrunner, Terry Metalis, and producers, writers, Sean Tretta and Christopher Monfett about the 12 Monkeys writer's room and the craft of writing a serialized story for television. Enjoy. Terry, co-creator and showrunner, welcome back. Hi. And also Morning. welcome to Sean Tretta and Chris Monfett.
1: Hey! thanks for having us.
0: Okay, gentlemen, so this is your first time specifically on our uh, Behind the Splinters limited series, so can you describe for us how you joined 12 Monkeys and how your roles on the show evolved from writing to producing through the seasons?
1: I had sort of the unique sort of experience of of, I was friends with Terry and Travis for, you know, years before uh, 12 Monkeys came into existence, and I met Travis when I was a, a entertainment journalist and met Terry through him. And, and, you know, we had just been kind of together coming up at the same time as, as, you know, writers and like-minded genre nerds. And, um, when, you know, 12 monkeys came to fruition and, and they finally got that project off the ground, you know, they kind of called me and said, look, we're, we're, we're going to go make this thing. Um, you know, come, come make it with us. And, they invited me essentially into my career. Um, that was the first show I'd ever worked on. And day one, season one, you know, walked into the room. And that's when I met Sean. And uh, over the course of the next four years, we all just kind of came together and worked together and and threw our ideologies, you know, onto the table every morning in, in the service of what we hoped was a good story. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, so, you know, I, I have my my friendship and my camaraderie with, with Terry and Travis to thank for the fact that I'm working at all today. So
2: <laughs> You would have been working um, without us. you would have been fine. <laughs> you would have been fine. Terry, maybe do you even not, better, do you, maybe even better off.
1: Terry, do you not remember that when you called me to say, Chris, you have to come work on the show. I was in New York working for time Warner cables, corporate blog. Do you happen yeah. to remember that? I would right. not have been better
2: off without that That's phone true. call. <laughs> That's true. And Sean, you were you were in Arizona, right? You hadn't even moved to LA yet. No, I was I was living in Arizona,
3: and um, you know I was you know working a regular job and um, making low budget horror movies on the side, and uh, I wrote a a pilot that I was lucky to have someone slip to somebody at Imagine, who then optioned it. Um, and then I was able to get an agent and they're like, you should come out and have, have staffing meetings. So, and this all happened within like a three month, uh, time frame. It was crazy. And so I started to come out for staffing meetings and I would basically like play hooky at work and I would get in the car, I would drive to California, take a meeting, drive back and be at work in Arizona the next day. And I got a call from my agents who were like, um, we, uh, we rep, uh, you know, Terry Metalis who's, you know, uh, who's got 12 monkeys and I loved the movie and they're like, they want to meet, um, can you meet, I think it was like a Wednesday. And uh, I was like, oh, that's going to be kind of tough. Like maybe I could do Thursday. And they're like, look, if you show up Thursday, there's like a 50% chance they hire you. If you show up Wednesday, it's like 90 so I had basically used up every goddamn excuse I could to not come into work. And I just, you know, played hooky, drove out, met with <laughs> Terry, Travis, and Natalie. And, uh, it went well. And I, I literally was driving through Palm desert, uh, where, you know, looking at all the windmills when I got the call from my agents that like, you know, the, the, you got the job, be here in like 10 days. So, you know, called my wife and was like, Pack everything up. We're done with Arizona forever. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, and, and you know, the the pilot I still to imagine was the first TV script I ever wrote. So, you know, in a matter of weeks, finding myself in uh, in a writer's room, which I'd never been in before, had very little concept of what a writer's room was, um, was a was was a culture shock. But I'm, you know, I will tell you this: I feel incredibly fortunate that this was the first show I worked on because I learned nothing but great things and great habits from yeah you know, this team Sean
1: and I had similar similarly kind of life-changing I think experiences coming into the show in the sense that you know I had I had worked uh you know in features for a couple of years before that and I I had written some things uh, for and with Clive Barker and I had adapted a Stephen King thing, but none of those things had sort of ever sold. And so I had migrated back to New York and I got the call. I was living in New York. It was a week before I was about to get married uh, to my wife. And it was like, we need you to be out literally in like three days. Um, And it was just like, I flew out a week before my wedding. I did the first week in the room. I flew back for the weekend, got married, like, this was our first show it it began our careers really changed our life trajectories um but I think I can't like second what Sean just said enough which is that like it is I am like beyond appreciative that this was the first show like the things that you learn the master class of um of just skill sets that you attain over the course of these 4 years were priceless like absolutely priceless
4: Terry, you had worked, obviously, in a lot of other writer's room coming into 12 Monkeys. So I'd love to hear sort of the flip side of that. What were sort of the lessons you took with you that you had gleaned from those experiences and your priorities in putting together your own writer's room for 12 Monkeys? Um,
2: Well, it's tricky because you don't just come in with it and they're like, who do you want? Um, there's a studio that has input and has to read everybody as well um, and agree. So you're getting a lot of people. You have to get a lot of people on board with each one of your choices. Um, Chris um, was somebody who I thought was like untapped talent for, for a very long time. Um, And, uh, you know, it seemed like, Hey, if we can break Chris in, what an incredible asset for the show. Sean was somebody who we just read his television script and it it was had a similar tone to 12 monkeys that we were looking for, which was it was this super grounded kind of crime thriller. I wouldn't even say a thriller, like a crime character piece that had like maybe like this 15% sci-fi genre component to it that was that just like brightened it up by the end and it was just like wow uh it kind of blew us away um but they were both staff writers for you know um newbies and travis and i weren't very much beyond that that's we were like story editor levels but we i had been you know sitting in the star trek room for you know, as an assistant for a long time, and then we were uh, Travis and I were on Terra Nova and Nikita together, so we had a really good sense of the kind of room we wanted to have. Um, and so you know, Sean and Chris fit right in, but it's you know, it's, it's very true, it's a lot harder now because there's even more television on the air. Um, everybody is typically working, um, there's so much product out there. Um, which is great, um, but it is is much harder to put together a room without. Like, if, if someone said, "Hey, Twelve Monkeys is back for four more seasons," I don't know that I could get the the whole gang back together. You know, everything spread out with everybody with different with different deals, so it would be it's it's just a different world now.
4: Can you all explain for all of the layman listening uh, how did the Twelve Monkeys writers' room work? And we, we hear the term thrown around all the time, the writer's room. But can you explain how you all did your work, maybe from like the beginning of the season when you come in day one, and just sort of walk us through how you all go from talking about ideas in a room to then sitting down to write individual episodes? Well, I mean, usually it
2: starts with, I'm trying to think about every every incarnation, but it always started with me being like, here's the shape. Here's what I think we need to get to um, and get through. Um, And usually there's like a dry erase board with gigantic bullet points. You know, Um, temporal facility is destroyed. They're stuck in 1957. You know, Uh, not even 1957. They're stuck in the 50s. You know, Um, reveal the witness at the end uh it, it, it's big moves like that the hunt for titan like we knew we knew we were we were gonna look for look for their home base that was that was something we talked about before the room got even in and then um in between like seasons two and three there were like ideas for the the idea for the eighth episode was an idea from season two which was like i i would love to see his point of view just do a whole episode from the witness's point of view that made you go huh i actually get it Um, and so you have like the big moves of, of of those kinds of things. And then you just talk and people start pitching their ideas and Chris and Sean jump in and, um, and it, and it evolves, um, how it gets to scripts. Boy. Um, I think we all start to just, we, we start to pick, yeah. Fight for like, like Sean's like, I'm writing the witness one. And I was like, yeah, but he's like, I'm it's mine you know, um, we just start to fight for the ones they really, you know, everybody really think like, speaks to everyone. And then sometimes, you know, for instance, like, I would say uh, 405, what's, this, is that the loop episode? Like, Oliver's, like, you know, that was one every one of us wanted to do, but, like, <laughs> someone else is going to get it, you know? Um, same thing with, like, you know, the Hannah episode, Lullaby, was, was one before even, we Met on season two. I knew that a loop de loop episode was going to lead to. Uh, I said, How great would it be to do Groundhog's Day? But it's actually the most emotional episode, and Jones gets her daughter back by the end. So there was, you know, everybody's like, Well, I want that one, I want that one. Everybody wants to develop that one, but it, but people are busy. So it's, um, now that I think about it, I'm like, Sean, you really got away with murder in Some of these assignments, <laughs> <laughs> you got all the all the juicy ones. You got two twelve too. Right? I remember like two twelve. Um, so uh, so it's, it's basically it's basically like that. In season one, you know, it was a different. Uh, there was a lot of other voices in there, and we're trying to find it. You know, and you have uh, a network. That is like, it's cool if you want to do time travel, but don't make it too confusing. And we need all those year cards to tell us where we are, wherever we are. And um, you're also navigating a production team that you don't know what they can or cannot do. And I think for me, like the episode where it's most apparent is probably one Oh three, where it the, this where we actually go to um, where did we go for that? Uh, for where Haiti was the Haiti? Um, no, I know we didn't go to Haiti though. Yeah, no, no, Dominican no. Republic. Dominican Republic, Republic. I mean, that was really great. But totally, if I wasn't on set, I felt like the show, like, kind of was like getting a little into like broadcast zone. Like it was, it wasn't feeling, it wasn't feeling as gritty as I wanted. Um, but I, I couldn't be there all the time. So it, the, the the translation of um, from vision to what happens can get lost and it's harder. And then also they were long scripts. They were just ambitious scripts. I mean, if you think about one Oh four where it's like this, it's a time loop and it's the West seven there are moments I think achieve what it is, but you only have, they, you know, we had suddenly we're like, we learned, we only had 43 minutes. So like 10 to 15 minutes gets cut, to, cut out of the pilot. And suddenly it, once you, once it starts to become 43 minutes, it does. Um, it does start to feel more like a television show. Although sometimes that pace helps you. Anyway, you're finding all of these things, and that includes in the writer's room. You're like, we can't have a 58-page script if we're only having 43 minutes of content. What are we doing? Um, it's tough. I-, I wish I could go back and fight more in season one, but it wouldn't have helped because the bottom line is um, no one we- – we got a great, a really good number for ratings for the pilot, but sci-fi didn't, they weren't able to get us a a second big giant helping like that. Um, And that's not necessarily entirely sci-fi's fault or, or it could you know, it's the show, you know, people were expecting Terry Gilliam. They, they watched it out of curiosity. It wasn't that, or they were like, Oh, that's good, but I have to actually pay attention to this. So I'll watch it later. Things like that. So it was hard to make demands. Um, after the fact that we just didn't have high ratings.
1: And I think like, I, I, I think that the, as for as much as like the show was narratively each season, you, you would kind of start day one, you'd sit down and it would be this whittling process of sort of putting out all our ideas, all our pitches of trying to sort of put something at the end of the season that we could then work backward and make the time travel logic work. And you would just slowly, slowly whittle down to more and more specific things. I think the thing that Terry, what, what you did so extraordinarily and better every season was because we were all getting to know each other better. Um, that you figured out, I think, how to play the orchestra of everybody's strengths. Um, that by the end, you know, the core team of writers, like every person's voice was kind of reflected somewhere in every episode because we could really dial into that this person did this thing well. This person did this thing well. This person was good for poetry. This good person was good for jokes. This person was good for structure. This person was good for whatever. And all of those things, by the time you get to season three, season four, we kind of knew, you know, regardless of whoever was in charge of a particular episode, um, you know, we would pull people in to really write up and amplify and do the things that they did great to own the characters that they wrote well. Um, and I, so I think by the time you get to season three and four, it really feels like a symphony where every instrument is complementing the next one. Um, and whereas I think like you've said, Terry, like season one and two was a lot of like, Ooh, I want this episode. I want that episode. By the time you got to three and four, it was a lot of like, Ooh, I want this scene or I want this sequence or I want this character. Um, because we all kind of dialed into, we do that well, or this person does that better than me. And so we, it felt more harmonic
3: true sure. yeah it's it, i think i think from the get-go one thing that was apparent was that like this wasn't just a job like everybody cared right and yeah. especially yeah. in like yeah. season one we were trying to find you know not necessarily the tone but like everybody <coughs> i think wanted to elevate and there were those instincts that were like this is just going to be on sci-fi maybe it's a little procedural let's not you know we're not amc and I, th- and I think everyone, for the most part, was like, no, let's let's make this great. And, you know, the, the one thing, and, and the reason I'm really grateful for having this be the first show is, for one, it's a very disciplined show. Um, you know, we had deadlines, and we had outlines that had to be 12 pages. They couldn't be 13 pages. They had to be 12 pages. And we had, you know, there were rules and structure that I think aren't always taught. And I think they're important. On the flip side of that, you know, as Chris and I being staff writers who traditionally would be told, Hey, you know, pick your moments, but you know, don't talk too much. It was just like, we want to hear everybody's ideas. And so there was this freedom in that room that just, you, you I don't think you would have got necessarily gotten in other places, but that's the thing. It's just, you know, you could tell Terry loved this show. Terry's like, I love this. Let's make this great and so you loved it. And then so when it came your shot to do your episode, I think everyone just left everything out there on the table that they could. Let's make this great. People really took ownership of things and I think that kind of enthusiasm makes, you know, made the show better.
1: I just think the DNA of the show also allowed everybody to it also get it it, because you could do a different kind of episode, whether it was a different subgenre, a different tone, um, from, from episode to episode, you know, you could do a heist episode followed by a horror episode followed by an espionage thriller episode, whatever it happened to be. Um, everybody felt like they had room even within, you know, an episode to, to, to explore the things that excited them about it not just like in the macro way but in the micro way
2: yeah <laughs> and there was a little bit of the kids are running the show too i think <laughs> um because i i was a, a, a first time um in that role and we all we all were super young so our our ideas were you know the it's a show where you can have high drama and then the next line is butt stuff only um <laughs> and Whereas traditionally, like I think in season one, there'd be too many people like that's not going to work. That's over the top. You can't do that from studio network or other producers on the show. Whereas by the end, we were like, no, fuck it. That's the show we want to make. Um, right. So I think you can feel that um, as the series goes on. You can actually feel it uh, in season one. Like you can by the time you get to there. The show is itself. I think in one good portions of two, three, uh, three has this, a lot of the right spirit of what we wanted to do. I, d- I just don't think we executed it. Perfect. Same thing with four, like the, I, the Ramsey Deacon Cole story is the spirit of the show, the right thing. But like, I don't know if the, the action stuff in the facility always works as well. Um, and then the night room, you know, I think the night room is another case of like, um, that episode shouldn't really work. Like it was a script that like, we, we all kind of had to bang our heads on. And then production wise, it was just, it was a really hard episode to make. Um, cause you have to remember directors, they come in per episode. So, that, so they don't really know the spirit of the show or what it is you're trying to do. And there's not really a lot of time to get them up. You have like two weeks to get them up to speed. And so you're going to get what you're going to get. So that's that was the moment I think was five. From there on, I was like, I'm living in Toronto. I'm staying here. Because if I'm not here, the kind of show you're going to get back is not the kind of show that we all had in our head. Um, I don't know. Now I'm getting stressed <laughs> out thinking about season one. <laughs>
3: well,
4: you know, it, it's it's interesting because what you all are just—I mean, I think as fans, um, sometimes the writing on this show feels like a little bit like magic in a bottle. Um, it it fit it and it and it makes then going and watching other TV shows, frankly, harder um, and <laughs> less enjoyable. <laughs> um, <laughs> but. But it sounds like what you're describing is a little bit of a kind of magic in a bottle thing where you all had great chemistry as writers working with one another. You had discipline, but you also had the freedom to be creative. I was curious just to pick up on what you were just saying, Terry, about, for example, you choosing to be on set all the time. Are, Are there other just sort of practical choices you all made that you think Sort of helped contribute to what you all ended up cre- creating, um, which is one of the best written television shows we've ever watched.
2: Oh, you?
4: No, it's true. It's true. We're still talking about it. Like <laughs> later.
2: <laughs> so. Um, what do you guys think? Any practical difficulties? I mean, well, that I, was I, one I, of them. Was getting up there and making sure Sean could get up there, and I think Chris didn't even get up there until season three, right? Like, it was yeah, it was. It was. Yeah,
1: it was season, like, early into season three, and then I didn't leave for, you know, until we were done.
3: I mean, it was, that was a big, long final two-season push. I, I will say that, like, you know, I, you know, I'm watch at this point, I'm watching, like, a lot of, you know, great television. I think Game of Thrones had just started, and so I'm watching all this very spoiled television, which is this, you know, television that had a lot of money to make, and so we arrived there and I come from like, you know, I made my first movie for $2,000. Right. So I'm like, anything's possible. This is an insane amount of money. And, and I remember Terry and Travis coming back from Toronto for their first, you know, pre-production stuff of there coming back and just being so deflated. And I think Terry said, we can't make the show we want to make, or they're telling us we can't make the show. Right. We want to make. And, and I was just like, why can't we like, you know, right. there's a way to be creative and stretch our dollars, like, and and so I think, you know, I think for us it was like just taking that attitude up there it was a lot of, you know, we loved everybody in Toronto, but it was a lot of people who had come from more traditional TV stuff, mm-hmm. and it was like we're not making a TV show, we're making a movie every couple weeks, right? And yeah, that's the way we have to look at it. Like it doesn't matter that there's 80 scenes in here. We'll figure out how to do it, but we have to,
2: right? And so you you you, you force. For instance, I'll just I'm just pulling this out of my ass. But uh, you know, in call it episode two hundred two, right? Where uh, you are at the Emerson Hotel. You have two different hotel rooms, right? Um, and then it, like this is just production wise. And then there's a phone call to Jones, right? So that's in the script. And then you cut to Jones's house, and she's like, "Mr. Cole, don't call me again," right? Well, production. And producers read that and they say, well, we're not, we're not, we got to get locations out. We got to, we got to spend money to go to Jones's house. We got to make her look young again. We have to get all this wardrobe. And then, you know, for Sean and I who started to get way more gorilla, it's like, no, it's one, it's a fake wall. We, you know, we do the best we can makeup wise. It's a one minute scene and we get one camera and we do it. That's it. That's all we're going to do it. And you're going to do it at the same time you're shooting another thing in a different room. Um, And so you have to do that. But I will say, and I know Sean and Chris will guarantee that the kind of filmmaking we did on 12 Monkeys, which was by the end, we were all accustomed to super gorilla. Like you want to do Olivia in the Red Forest? It's got to be camera tricks and things like that. And we got to figure it out on the shows that we work now, especially ones that I think kind of shoot in California where they're just usually used to just we do whatever we want there's less of a appetite to be guerrilla style and to be creative. Yeah. There are, like, I mean, I mean, I was just on calls on Friday. I was like, guys, this is how I did this with $3 million. We have so much more than that. How come we can't do it the same way? And there's always, there's always an excuse. Um, and sometimes very, very genuine and smart ones. But for the most part, I think uh, to Sean, to Sean's credit, it's like when we went up there, we had to, we were the kids telling the adults, no, no, you don't have to do this traditionally. You just need this shot. And it was very frustrating. Um, it was a little bit of like a culture war almost about it at times. And then by season two, it had gone away, but by, but season one was, was, was pretty difficult. Like for instance, in now, this has just turned into a rant now. Um, but in Sean's episode, uh, 11, um, What's, what's the name of that episode? Shonen. 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 We, we wanted pouring rain in the alley of Tokyo. Like we wanted it so bad. And we were like, we want rain. And everyone was like, you can't afford rain. It does this. You got to get different wardrobe choices, blah, blah, blah. we're like, fine. We were told we can't afford it. Then season two came. And I really started to get into the numbers about what we can afford. Um, and um, I was officially showrunner, not just in duties, but in in actual full-on rank. So I was like, "Let me see the budget from season one." And you see, oh, you we absolutely could afforded we could have afforded rain in that episode, and for the whole episode, if we wanted to, you could just have rain everywhere. That's how much money we, you know. So there, there, there comes a, I think on these low budget, lower budget shows. The showrunner has to actually get involved and look at that those numbers because sometimes your people just say no, we can't do it just because it's really hard, not because you can't actually do it.
4: Yeah, yeah. And, and is that is do you think that that's sort of a unique being that hands on, as it sounds like you all were as writers? I don't
2: I think- know. I, I think so. I, I don't know what do you guys think.
3: You you had to be engaged in like every aspect of it. Like when you were up there like producing, you were producing like you know you would be in these meetings for the talk about we can't afford the rain and and you would talk to the the effects guys like hey man w- what is it going to take for us to do rain he's like oh we need us the sprinkler head you know and it's just like y- you would you would investigate and you would you would inform yourself and and so when you got into these conversations you really got into the nitty-gritty of it and you knew when something was real versus something that was just like someone just didn't want it right and and every little damn thing was a fight. Um, but then by the time we got to season three and four, it went from fighting for little things like rain to them literally often exceeding our expectations with things yeah. like it became less of a fight and it became more of like you show up on set and you're like, God damn, you guys did a phenomenal job. And, and it all just, you, we just, once we changed the culture of we all care it's not just a little yeah. sci-fi show. We want to do things, great things. And I think it's when they saw season one, and they saw started to see season two that they're like, "Oh, we're not making. It. We're with you." Yeah. And then they were with us the rest of the way.
1: I think that there's also a kind of we discovered something the inverse of that as well, which was not just how do you how do you squeeze every dollar onto the screen? How do you make creative? Um, uh, how do you make creative and logistical decisions uh, to support what you want to do? But also in those moments where you legitimately couldn't do something that you might have wanted to do on the surface, we had become creatively brave enough to find interesting and unique, producible, oftentimes better iterations of things. Like I remember Terry when we when we were uh, looking at. Uh, after in season four and we wanted to do up um, with the uh, with the man's father with Shaw um, originally that was you know when we had talked about it it was you know a, a series of sets a series of scenes a series of actual places we would have had to go and shoot those moments of his life and by the end of that discussion when we were looking at the schedule it was well practically that's not going to be possible beyond just a, a, a logistical solution. And then so we said, well, how do we approach this creatively? And I think we had confidence then to do something as brave as what if you put a camera in the center of a room and each wall is a decade of his life,
4: you mm-hmm. know what I mean?
1: And you and you just turn that camera and you do it artfully. Um, we were much more confident by then to be able to say, you know what, we can totally pull that off and make it just as good, if not better than what we might have originally, originally imagined.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Is it tip as you all are describing this, it just sounds like um nightmare? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it sounds you know, uh, for those of us that don't work in TV, is it typical for the writers to be thinking through all of these production details the way it sounds like you all were?
2: Um no, I think I think no, it's not. And and what was great about, we just started, I just trusted these people. You know, we had this, once we had the same vision, I mean, everybody kind of had to learn a little bit of production and how much you can push back and, you know what I mean? Because there is a limit Um, because these are, these are, these are other artists up there too, who are sensitive to their own art. Um, But uh, you know, I think in television, the writers uh, typically, drive a lot of that process but i think in this case it was hey we we all need to make this thing um and we don't have enough money to do it and do we trust trust everybody enough to to get in there and and get their hands dirty so but i wouldn't say certainly if there was like a new hbo uh dc show i think it would be pretty rare for a staff writer to be on set like reorganizing scenes um and storylines to work within a budget uh at that level i think that so i would say probably we we had a we came up trial by fire i think yeah it
3: it was also like a rank thing too so it's like you like you know i know for me staff writer in toronto season one like there's a bit of like yeah 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 your shut up staff kid. writer, shut up, right? No. I literally, you know, I won't say who, but I, I literally <laughs> got pulled into an office by someone who, you know, who who I now love and, and think is but our first in-depth conversation was now Sean. And and this is being spoken with their hands behind their back, like doing that forward lean, like, listen, little kid. <laughs> um, but it was now. I'm going to tell you how television is made, uh, you know? And it was like, okay, that's great. But, um, and I think at that point I called Terry and I was like, who do I work for? Cause like, do I work for them? Do I work for you? Do I work for Natalie? Cause at this point in season one, Natalie had sort of taken like a backseat to Terry. Natalie was doing other things. And so Terry's like, you work for me. You speak for me. And you oh, tell yeah. them they are to do what I want. And I'm yeah. like, thank you. So at that from that point on, it was just like, hey, this is what Terry wants. And that was like the great equalizer of things because you know, but you have you have to be empowered that way. Otherwise, people just tell you no. And you 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 kind of have to, you know, and I think and I think up there and them seeing like this kid's not gonna go away. And you know, Chris isn't going to go away, and so they are. When they're here, they are working on behest of Terry, and and we have to, you know, um, you know, we have to res- respect that. And you know, and but they also knew we were also on their team, and we are reasonable, and, and so we were not like a bunch of br- rats or anything like that. Maybe a little, but um, you know, we were we we were there to make good things. We were there to also be helpful. That's the thing too. It's like, we know we're asking a lot and we're here to help you figure out how to get everything we need.
1: Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's a big component of it. And and one of the components that I found myself responding to and enjoying the most was it is, it is a game of personalities to some extent, which is you do have to go up there. And as much as you're trying to figure out scenes and budgets and, and logistics and production, you're also trying to figure out people and you, you, you 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 get to know these people so acutely, and you're that you you begin to understand the set of influences, uh, fears, insecurities, ambitions that every different person brings into a room. Whether it's an actor, whether it's a, a designer, whether it's a you know producer, and you kind of over time learn how to engage and get people on your side in different ways because it's not one it's not a one size fits all job. You can't paint everybody, treat everybody with the same brush. And so you really do learn how to get the best out of everybody and how to engage them to, to 110%. And I think over time, over seasons two and, and three and four, we were able to do that with everybody. Um, so that you know they trusted us and we trusted them. And when we knew we needed to get somebody on our side, we knew how to do it without just sort of like planting a foot and saying, no, this is how we're doing something. We knew how to convince them that what we were thinking is, was the right way
2: right. To listen and then, to them and hear the opposite. But you also find, you know, you also find allies, you know, we yeah. were lucky in the fact that our, our, our producer, uh, producing director, David Grossman, he, he's really quick and he's really loose and, uh, you know, and, and, let the kids run the show far more than a professional of his should have, you know, was probably, or or even wanted to from early on or Chris Byrne, Chris Byrne was the second unit director on Hannibal right now, which was like the more surreal aspects of the 12 monkeys in the red forest shared a sensibility, uh, a sort of artsy fartsy kind of um, more poetic uh, vision. Uh, That's what, what I wanted for the show, but not every director sort of understands that. I remember like um, our line producer would be like, it's real fetishy. I'm like, okay, sure. Fetishy. But like Chris Byrne, you go and you're like, here's what it is. They're a secret society that go back probably thousands of years. And they, they worship this kind of iconography and they view time as kind of a deity. in this, this way he's like, I get it. And I know how to do that cheap because he was the second unit director. So we do camera lens tricks and things Mm -hmm. and, you know, and brilliant uh, uh, visual uh, design that we would never have thought of other way. By the way, Chris Byrne, (laughs) you really want to like, so at the top of season two, Chris Byrne's like, so here's what you guys want to do a lot of red forest stuff season. We do it. We should do it within the unreal engine. I know a visual effects company that will build a a red forest in CGI and we use it in the unreal engine and we can just run that behind uh, our actors on a green screen, whenever we want. And all the visual effects companies that we were working with at the time were like, that's fucking crazy. Well, the Mandalorian forward, (laughs) (laughs) right? Yeah. The the Mandalorian uh, that their bread and butter is the unreal visual effects engine. The only difference is there's an led wall, you know, uh, an AR wall that they shoot in, um, that you, that's more practical. Um, but it, it was basically what Chris was pitching five years ago, five six years ago. So um, anyway, see, it, I, I think if you find those um, allies, and we did, it it makes the dinner party much better, um, and it becomes fun. You know, like I used to. That uh, Chris started to do our second unit shots they ended up being some of like my favorite shots of this series you know just that those inside shots of like the red tea spilling in and chunks of tea and then the red clouds and all that stuff um the 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 mix the crunching of the leaves and the mixing all that stuff all chris and is part of the aesthetic of the show and then you take that footage and you go and you sit down with Stephen barton or trevor trevor rabin and you're like i want reverse bells and weird things to make me feel like I'm moving through time. And it's, you know, God, we should just, I just wish we could do this show
4: again. (laughs) Uh, Those of us who watched it feel sort of the same way. Um, (laughs) I, I, one, one thing I'd love to hear about how you all, uh, one of you in the past, when we had talked on a previous podcast, talked about how in your room, despite as I think we could only begin to imagine time loops and trying to keep a very, you know, sometimes bonkers mythology straight, that you all would come back to the question of why do we care? And at least as a a TV audience, perhaps more than any other, uh, even more than movies, why we care is because of the characters. And one thing this show just did so well is even... Even when characters were betraying one another, even when relationships were fractured, you always seem to bring it back to these characters that we cared about and are sort of supposed to care about one another. And then also really helping us to see different characters' point of view so that even if you didn't agree with what a character was doing. You understood why they were doing something, which isn't always the case when you're watching TV. It feels sometimes like, oh, these characters are just sort of pieces on a chessboard and you're moving them where you need them to go. So were there sort of, I'd love to hear a little bit about that, why do we care discipline or mantra that you all seemed, had mentioned before having.
2: I think you learn that by mistake. You learn that Um, by writing a script that has all the cool shit you talked about. Um, Like I said, we were all very young writers when we got on there. So it, it, you know, there could be dozens of colder, gritty time travel stories. Like even just saying this, I want to write them all that are, that are a lot less um, based on the character and emotion than you'd think, you know, they're twisty adventures um, that that have emotional stakes, but are at the forefront. I think what happens sometimes when you get those scripts or you write those scripts, um, something is missing when you read it and it's intangible. And it usually is because you're not on the character journey. Um, And I, for me, it it took me, you know, I mean, I was deep into my thirties before I started to realize that, that was a problem. Um, and I think, and I would say early in season one, because there was a 43 minute run time and we were trying to burst through things. I actually think that's where we lost some of our audiences. I don't think they were connected to Cole the way we connected to Cole in the pilot. Um, and, and um, you know, really in the pilot, you don't really know very much about him. He's just kind of on the journey and he's, you know, but there was a whole sequence where uh, that was cut from the pilot, where he's in the car with Cassie. I think this is probably turned up in deleted scenes or whatnot, where he's like uh, he starts to talk about the future and why he should be erased, and it flashes to him as a horrible scav, you know, killing innocent people and taking their food to survive. And you realize, oh, this guy, this guy has a dark past that he's trying to erase. There's way too much red in that ledger, um, and so. Uh, you know, and so I think, and, and that was cut because we only had 43 minutes, but that was important. And that was a mistake. I shouldn't have allowed that to happen. Also the scene with him and Ramsey, um, Ramsey's like, I can get you out of here. But like, there was a relationship there, um, that was in the pilot that we, we cut for time and we shouldn't have. Um, so anyway, you start to feel all these things. And I think probably in season one, you know, it's easy to get on board with a ship, any kind of like the Cole and Cassie ship, but it's not like even that doesn't feel, it has to feel earned. Yeah. And it didn't really start to feel earned until Sean's episode uh, in um, the uh, CIA one. The, key. the,
4: the, key. the keys. Is- keys.
2: Right. That's kind yeah. of the first one.
4: Mm-hmm. And I, but,
2: yeah. I, if I
3: can, I'll tell you what I always feel was like the turning point. And it was, it was magic. And so it was, um, it was on, you know, the keys and it was Cassier dressed up, and they're going to the ball. And intellectually, we were—I know I personally—and I know Aaron Stanford was too. Um, and I'm going to give Terry all the credit here. Um, you know, we were like Cole's what? not. Li-. I'm like Cole. Oh, uh, I not, remember this. Yes, Cole is not comfortable here. He's on edge. He doesn't want to dance basically and terry was like no let's let's have cole want to dance and i was just like i I don't know he's not being the edgy guy that like we've all been like steering him towards and terry's like no we need to give him a little light a little life and and i remember terry was saying aaron didn't want to do it he thought it was wrong and but you know The day came when the rest of us were in the office. We weren't, you know, none of us were in Toronto. We were all in Burbank. And the dailies for that scene came. It's Cole and Cassie dancing there. And everybody in the office gathered around one screen and watched just the dailies of this thing. And you could just tell it was magic. And so that is the moment when I think 12 Monkeys stopped being the intellectual exercise and became more of like the character emotional show that it became.
4: Mm. Yeah, It's so interesting you describe it that way because as a viewer, that that m- matches my viewing experience um, of when you really start to kind of fall in love with these characters and you feel invested. Um, but yeah, there's,
2: there's something tricky about that too, right? For instance, now, if if someone said, here's a trillion dollars, you can go back and reshoot season one. It's tough because you want to earn that moment because it's very easy to do that moment in the pilot. It's very easy to do it by episode three. But for me, it feels totally unearned to do that. I think a smarter show I, I, and we tried to give little pops of it, you know, with the and I think is a little bit clumsy, you know, like the he's teaching her how to shoot a gun inexplicably in the bookshop <laughs> um, the thing because we couldn't afford to go on that. Like, that's a mistake. I should have been like, guys, he can't fucking do this in the bookshop. Um, but, um, but things like that, you know, that I wish we could, I just know we could do it better. But at the same time, because everybody's like, "Oh, season one's great, but season two is where it's really good." But I don't know if you get season two without season one. Like, it is in a weird way, season one is the pilot of the show. It, it's 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 slowly taking you in and and educating you as to how the time travel works, how these relationships work, how the world works, and then it sort of pops by the end. Um, but, yeah. I, I think I, I think the whole show,
1: you know, I think you're exactly right, Terry. I think the show is a build it really builds to itself in a way that you couldn't have just cut to the chase. Like some of the things that we felt, and I talked about this earlier sort of creatively brave enough to do in season three and four, whether it's, you know, we're going to do a musical number sign Jennifer's head. Those are not things that I think you would necessarily have even worked if they'd been a part of the sort of poet, like, like the lexicon of the show or vocabulary of the show in season one and season two. I think we, Season one, as the pilot of the series, really does set the grounded nature of the world, the story stakes, etc. Season two begins to expand, I think, the sense of mythology and character. And by the time you get to season three, I think we've really earned the right to go into some of these more foreign, sort of fun, creative, experimental um, ways of modes of telling story in a way that I don't think we could have gotten away with doing in season one at all. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Especially with Jennifer as a character.
4: (laughs) Period. I mean, she gives you a a lot of leeway. Yeah. One thing I want to just follow up and ask about, because it's something that fans here discussed all the time, that writers are worried about the, quote, moonlighting effect. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, there was just an article that came out this week talking about how 12 Monkeys wrote I think it was from fangirlish. One of the best TV romances we've ever had. Um, In part because you all didn't stretch out will they or won't they for four seasons. Um, And once we sort of got over that, like went around that big turning point, it was never what happens so often on other TV shows where it's like, ah, we got to break them up now because we can't think of anything else interesting to do. Right. Um, so, and Chris, you actually talked a little bit about this on Twitter a few months ago, that like, if that's all you have to say about a pairing, then it's just not going to be that interesting. But I'd love to hear, is, is this moonlighting effect um, that we as fans hear so often about, is that something in the back of your minds? And and how did you all yeah. um, sort of come around to We totally talked it, about, you about dead? Yeah.
2: So- oh, yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think the key to it is that as long as there's tension, um, then it's interesting. But the second there's there's not, like even in their happier moments, say when they're going back uh, uh, in um, 308, I think it is, and they're learning to dance and get ready for the ball and they're happy and you see them cute. There's the tension of, their kids going to destroy the world, you know what I mean. So it's not an easy. And they're being hunted by their friends, and they're united, but there's a tremendous amount of emotional tension around them. Even when they have a secret that that their their child might be the witness or is the witness rather, you know. And then in season four, it's you know, and that that was a little trickier, which was we're going to we we still need to pull them apart because we know that we knew that at the top of season four, her journey was going to be. Maybe I shouldn't push this button at the last moment. And you have to believe that. So they kind of have to be on their own character journeys, which means they're not like just like high fiving each other and making out all the time, despite yeah. the fact that, you know, you get those tweets like, I just want them to kiss and do just, you're like, You don't even know what you want. Stop it. Yeah. Um, So, and that's that is a thing like the fans don't know what's good for them. Um, yeah. And that's, that's we also thing I heard, heard in a room. I was a, uh, when I was in Nikita which was was the show He's he like fans don't know what's good for them and and he was right. Craig was right. Um, but yeah, go ahead, Chris.
1: We also didn't enmesh like story, romance, ideology, all the various and small subtle components that make up the totality of a romance into one thing. We let them be their own different threads. We could like Cole and Cassie could be romantic and in love with each other but still have competing ideologies. The story could take them in two different directions, but they could still be linked together. Um, they didn't have to be with and agree with each other all the time in order for that to qualify as, quote unquote, a relationship. And yeah. I, yeah, exactly. And, you know, look, look, I've been, I've been married twice. Um, all three of us uh, were, you know, were married at the time that we were making the show. We've been through relationships. We all understand that relationships are complicated and multifaceted and multi layered and, um, and that this, you know, that that if you can't find drama in a relationship, um, you know, and that doesn't mean that doesn't mean <laughs> negative drama, but it's everywhere. The compromises, the conversations, the the you know, how, the if you can't mine and drama from that, um, and you have to mine it in rather from will it or won't a relationship form. I, I don't know. I, I don't. I, I, I question whether you've ever been in one. You know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so,
4: yeah. Um, are there, this is sort of a, a two part question. We would love to hear about some of the biggest debates you all had in the writer's room, whether it was how to execute a plot twist or whether a character makes a certain choice and why. And then whether, and when, whether you found that that debate was then reflected in audience reaction or not. So things that were, like, intended to be, you know, you guys debated it and it's clashing points of view and then you sit back and watch the audience then debate it and you're like, yes, that's what that's the same fight we had. Um, or other times where the audience reacted to something and you were like, wow, that's not what we were expecting.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean sometimes... Dad, it, there's so many. <laughs> there's so many. And, and sometimes they were like, you know, uh, what is appropriate, you know, uh, whether it's, like... Uh, you know, Sean writes in the first draft of a script and there is Cassie in lingerie with a Nazi cap spraying bullets on the like, you know, <laughs> it's great. But then you have to be like, Amanda, uh, all the women, how do you feel about this moment? Cause we, we have a point of view, what's your point of view? And, um, and you know, I still maintain that was the moment I was worried the most and got, the, have gotten absolutely no flack on <laughs> the date T- to date. Who knows yeah. what's going to happen. Um, but but there are those things, you know. I think, and then there's also debates, like for instance, having an indigenous character in the Western episode was a tr- huge debate. Um, the 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 seer is that what we called him? Yeah, the yeah. Native American, yeah. and, and our whole thing was we're going to do the proper research and uh, the Sixieki, I think, right? Wasn't that the name yeah. of um, his tribe? Mm-hmm. And like, try and be like, that's exactly what how they dressed uh, you know uh, but just having one who offered advice was that offensive. Um, so, I mean, that was a debate, but then there was also definitely story advice uh, like what's too dark. I mean, I'll let the boys, you guys I, go for it. I, what, what I, think the,
1: I think the most interesting debate we, we had, and it's not a specific beat or scene, but was coming off of season two. Um, I, we we had never tried. I think we just always tried to be fair with our characters. We always tried to 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 write our characters to to the best versions of of who they were even if they were damaged and complicated. And um you know, we we began to be become aware that we were receiving some accolades and kudos for writing strong women characters. Now, we never sat down at any one time to said, "Let's write strong. We only ever wanted to write great characters service a great story and right. people, that's all we ever wanted to do but when we be- but that conversation began to brew after season two and we went into season three with a kind of now conscious awareness that this is something that we supposedly quote unquote did well um and now you start to talk about a, a, a four episode arc in which cassie is a the kept woman in the castle oh yeah and does that or does that not undercut the what we have done by exactly. creating a creating a story in which she needs to be rescued and how do you balance the sort of narrative necessity for telling this story with the sort of awareness of like is this it is this gonna take back some of the stuff that people seem to think we do really well um, and so that was I, I think that to me was the most interesting ideological conversation we had in the room, which is, can you tell this story in a way that allows Cassie to be strong, even though it requires her to be rescued, and not um, take two steps back along a road that we're being praised for for moving down? Um, and that—that that to I me think, was one of the more interesting.
3: I think the the prevailing thing on, on that topic was is that it never came down to answering that particular question. The real question right. we had to answer was: Does she have agency? And I think that's how we always looked at all our characters. Like, you know, people just sitting around not giving a shit is boring. So, you know, like if she's going to be a prisoner, like what is she doing? And that made her very active. And and honestly, thinking back, like I remember Cassie's journey a lot more than I remember Cole's for that particular (laughs) episode because she's doing a lot. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's where, like, when you're looking for those answers, that's where you find it. It's not necessarily in like, you know, what service do we need to do, but like, what service do we need to do to these characters and, yeah. you know, and, 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 whether or not they're active and, you know, like Terry's right. You just, you just sort of feel it. Right. And it just, it, it's something that feels icky because it's just like, we're just having somebody sit around. And we can't do that. Like everybody's yeah. engaged. Every, the stakes are a high for everyone. And that's where, you know, you find your answers. It's just in, in the storytelling.
2: Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you balance it too, because you don't want to just see her, uh, see Cassie after season two, just stuck. Like she's going to make a, an escape attempt. She's going to buy yeah. her time and she's going to, she stabs somebody in the fucking eye <laughs> <laughs> with, with a, with a butterfly pin. Right. So um, it, it's, uh, whether or not she succeeds or not. And then, you know, the, the conversation of where that went to is where she goes and she's pregnant and she's got the witness was this organic like conversation. We had not only just with Amanda, because Amanda, the first thing she said is just so you know, if I'm pregnant with the witness, I'm stabbing my belly. I'm like, Jesus Christ. No, you're not <laughs> right. It's come from a woman who's never been pregnant yet. And so, um, but you do have to take that into an account that eventually That does seem like if it's going to save the world, it would make sense. So why not lean into that? And how do you do that in a way that's as beautiful as possible and not make you want to be like, I can't watch this show. I can't watch a show about a woman who's trying to kill her kid all the time. Um, Yeah. So, so yeah, those are definitely the some pretty heavy. I I think killing your kid was always. I mean, that's just like the
3: that's like the number one. You know debate we'd have, right? Cause then, yeah. you know, the one that comes to mind too is is Ramsey and his son. And I think because of time yes. travel, the show presented the unique circumstances of like, you, you suddenly have to ask these questions where you wouldn't, on any other show you wouldn't. And so I think that one was like controversial. And it's weird, cause I think some of the ones that seem like big swings were sort of oftentimes just obvious and organic to us in the room. Yeah. Um, on some of them. And then you would, you know, you'd have people go, whoa. And you just be like, that's in our language. Like, yeah. It's not off the table. Like, you know, um, and, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't think there's one that I can think of that we so got wrong. I feel like everyone's no. like something you can, you know, that's it, justifiable within the logic of the show.
4: What is it like to be writing TV now? and have this double-edged sword of instantaneous audience feedback via social media, where you can, I'm sure if you wanted to go down that rabbit hole, read, just scroll through Reddit or Twitter, and you have like, you know, the biggest focus group in the world reacting to Mm -hmm. what you wrote. What's it like to write (laughs) with all of that feedback and trying to balance learning from it like, how did certain twists or how did certain character choices land? What can I take away from that? Well,
2: the big, I mean, the biggest one probably, uh, and it was we ignored it, which was uh, Cassie in season two. I think it frustrated yeah. a lot of viewers. And they're like, was well, she being such a bitch to call blah, blah. And I was just like, okay, this is, I, I don't it's know stupid. how to, exp- yeah, I don't know how to explain to this fan that she's not being a bitch and that she's absolutely traumatized by the, everything that happened in season one and the death of her fiance and Cole choosing Ramsey over her and being thrown into the future and having like like it make it makes perfect sense the way she is. Um so we wouldn't ignore it honestly. Um the but most of the time Twitter's like a live studio audience, you know, if your jokes are working and it's not like we had a giant you know, certainly, like uh, like on Star Trek, where it's like I can't even—I'll never get done scrolling through anything—a tweet on Star Trek because there's just so many. Twelve Monkeys—you know—you had a very vocal 300 right. fans, and you probably knew them all by name and referenced them in the writers' room.
1: <laughs> we we also, you know, were doing Twelve Monkeys in such a way that that you know, if Twitter were to affect our thinking, our writing, our the way we viewed the show or you know, if 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 there was criticism or praise that we wanted to dial up or dial down all of that happened between seasons we you know we were we we just had to write the season we believed in the most and then we would go and produce it and then it would air and then you would get the sort of live feedback you know you would get the feedback from it and then you would or wouldn't apply certain things to the following season I had the interesting experience after 12 Monkeys of writing for 911, which is a much different, much broader um, show. Which, because we're doing 18 episodes of that show, it's almost always in production. And so, you know, episode one would start airing and we'd still be writing or we'd still be producing the latter half of the episode. So you actually could adjust things for your season in real time based on what the audience was saying on a weekly basis. And that was actually kind of interesting that you could episode one could be airing as you were writing episode 15, 16, 17, and you could stop and go, wait, is this thing we thought we were going to do with this character going to work now? Because the audience doesn't seem to be responding the way we wanted them to respond, or maybe we know it's going to work because they are. Um, And that was an interesting experience as well. But honestly, what I think I discovered from you know, the audience, audiences just want to love characters. They will go on whatever narrative ride they will trust you to do that if you have constructed characters that they love. Um, and if you continue to serve them, you know, narratively, honorably, and
3: thematically. I, you know, I, I think that there's, you know, we had a hardcore group of, of fans who love the show. Um, and you know, you guys are obviously super fans, but the, the original super fans of 12 monkeys are us. Like if we <laughs> if if right. something in the room was like, fuck yeah, let's do that. We very true. knew when that aired, the fans were gonna say the same thing because we were with we were along with them. So I remember feeling like very like I think we just knew stuff was gonna work because. We were all in the same mindset, and we're like, yeah. we're excited to show you this, and so we sort of knew that the audience would be excited to see it because because you could just tell every all the fans are asking the right questions. I've never seen people so acutely dialed into something right. that they were fans of, and so you were just like, they're asking about this, and you would know it's coming up, and so you would be excited. You would be sitting there watching, and you'd you'd be you know on Twitter like all right, this moment is going to come. Let's see what they say. And, you know, they would always, they, like, we're in the same group. We're the same, we're all the same yeah. bunch of nerds, right? And so if we dug it, we knew they'd dig it too.
1: There's also, an to, at the extension of that is that, like, we had learned that, that it's easy to trust each other when you all agree. It's more difficult to trust something where you don't agree. And I think we had reached a point later in the show where we all trusted each other's sensibilities that even if someone wanted to make, even if any permutation of people, whether it was me or Terry or Sean or Terry or whoever, wanted to do something that maybe you weren't on board with, you trusted these people that you were in the creative foxhole. You trusted their tastes enough to know that's going to work out great, even if I can't see it right now. And I think like, by the time you get to the later half of the but the the second half of the show, we all knew each other so well that if Sean really fought for something, if Terry really fought for something, whether I was a hundred percent on board, I always knew that their taste, um, that their taste level either like matched or exceeded more often than not exceeded my own and that it was going to be awesome. And so like the camaraderie and the working together, and the, the willingness to trust each other with ideas that you might not seemingly be on board with at the get-go, but you would get there eventually was, I think, priceless.
4: Yeah, what I think is interesting listening to you all, sometimes... Um particularly recently, I think my least favorite term in people talking about TV is subverting expectations. Oh, God, yeah. Um, (laughs) Because-
2: Well, just to jump in there, I think once once intelligent audience members started to use the word trope a lot on Twitter, that's when I was like, you guys don't fucking know what a- Shut up. (laughs) <laughs> Tropy trope, 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 trope. That like they love to throw that word around like they've been in writer rooms, writers' rooms for like ten years, and it's like, guys, well, you know, right. the trope of the rescue, and you're like, guys. Uh, anyway, go on.
3: Incidentally, <laughs> nowadays, if you see something once, it's, it's now a trope. trope. Yeah. yeah, right, right. Exactly. So it's yeah. sort of a meaningless term. Yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, in terms of the way that you hear it, is basically at least recently. It, it just it just sounds like maybe sort of the at the at the core of is because you all cared about the characters as much as the audience did um, and so even when there were character deaths um, it, it, that 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 piece that you all said about the audience doesn't always know what's good for them sometimes that can manifest itself in a way where as an audience member you're like yeah but I you told me to emotionally invest in this Um and yeah, now uh, you're pulling the rug out from under me, right? And, and so you, it, the balance you all struck is, is actually, it was a special thing.
2: Well, I think here's the thing. You want, here's a dirty little secret. It's really easy to subvert expectations. Super easy. Yeah. Just do something that makes absolutely no fucking sense. They're right. subverted. Um, and I think it's much harder to be tuned into, I know what the audience wants. And whether you have to decide, do I also want the, uh, what the audience wants, right? How do you get there in a satisfying way? For instance, I think, um, I think if you, if you were following, um, you know, in the last few weeks, fan girlish um, has been covering the show and, and Lizzie specifically is very smart. She's been live tweeting the series um, and she is, she has a mind of someone who should be in the writer's room. She can see twists coming. But what was, what I think we did right on the show is just because you might see something coming. Doesn't mean that that's the wrong choice. Just because the audience is like, what if it's Hannah? Doesn't right. mean that, right. that it should, that it should be fucking, you know, Whitley. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, can't, <laughs> it, 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 it just, you're like, Oh, I definitely didn't see that coming you know it, it it because it doesn't mean it's not satisfying when you right. think you might know the answer in fact sometimes it's more satisfying when you when you figured it out and you're like i don't know how you get there but i hope they do because it's such a great answer that's kind of the way we looked at it um, yeah. and so yeah because you know i think I, every time i hear subverting i think about the last jedi debate <laughs> yeah
3: <laughs> it you know it, it's like You know, we definitely, we were conscious of, we, it was definitely like, be careful what you wish for fans, because we're going to give you what you want. We're going to make that pact with you, but you may not get it in the way you thought you were going to get it. it. You know, like prime example is Cole and Cassie, you know, consummating it, you know, and it's like, Oh, but guess what? It's, intercut with their friends being slaughtered and oh by the way they're creating the witness yeah so
2: there you go by the way my my favorite 12 monkeys experience probably was um that was we did the paley fest with um episodes 12 and 13 um in a theater with packed with fans and that hadn't aired yet so everybody had caught up to 2 you know 211 and started with 212 and watching that in a theater like the first time Cole and Cassie kiss and the the screams and the <laughs> cheers and then instantly cutting to the gasp of like that was one of the most satisfying experiences you played ever. better than the Avengers it was yeah. just like that yeah it was yeah. I've that never was been like, in a room was our like blockbuster that moment
3: yeah
4: <laughs> it was it was
1: great yeah. I, I just think I think if you're if you're gonna give if you're gonna give somebody what they asked for or what they wanted, the trick is how do you give it to them in in something other than the way that they wanted it? If you're like it's like Terry said, like if you if, if you give me a bag of skittles and then I open it and inside it's filled with rocks, that's not a great way to subvert my expectations. That doesn't make me happy. If you give me a bag of skittles and there's a million dollars inside. Well, then that's better than the Skittles. So you have to have either something that's gonna be better or something that's going to be as satisfying as the thing I want, but nicely surprising. I think what's harder in this is to use expectations to set that up, is is a constant awareness in the room. And we would always be talking about this. What do we think the audience is expecting? Because we we have to take the audience's point of view. And then how do we give it to them in an interesting way? Um, not how do we rob them of it?
3: (laughs) Yeah. And and often like we would, you know, we would vet things. Like if we, if if there's a situation where we thought, oh, you know, the audience wants this, we would follow that. And you would always end up in dead ends where it was just like, there's nowhere for this story to go. There's a lot more, there's a, there's much more options for the story to go. If you take it a different way. I, I think, I think the problem with like the subverting expectations, I don't think it's a bad thing. When I hear that, I hear, don't be lazy. Right. You know, it's like we're yes, writers tend to tell the same story over and over again. You know, what is there? there's only seven stories or whatever? It's like if you're gonna do something at the heart of it is, you know, familiar, like how are you gonna tell this in an interesting way? Like we owe that to the audience to make things that are new. And if we don't, we don't deserve these jobs. Right. Right. And by the way, selfishly the owner's gonna do that
1: like selfishly yeah. we owe it to ourselves because we're the ones who have to make this like we have to write the script we have to be on set we have to make the episodes we have to sell this to the to the the actors uh, and get them to uh, uh, believe it and, and like so it's we're you know we it, we have as much investment in these things being interesting and quantitatively good than the audience does because we have to own them we live with we we live with these a lot longer than the audience does the audience absorbs it, you know, in an hour and then takes away whatever the experience is, but we make it over the course of months and weeks. So if we don't like it, we're really we're disserving everybody, including ourselves. Yeah. yeah.
4: We're short on time. We did want to ask just sort of one final question, just sort of to pique fans, something that a lot of fans have interest in. If you got a call that <laughs> you were asked to write a Twelve Monkeys graphic novel, <laughs> what for each of you? What what would it be about?
2: Oh God! Um, I mean, I mean, come on! I know Sean, you're, there's no way you're not doing you know Twelve Monkeys throughout history, right? I mean, aren't <laughs> you? Oh, oh, Why yeah. would, no,
3: I, I I mean, yeah, I, I would. You know, there's all those spaces to fill in. Like the <laughs> the one thing I think we we always joked about in the writer's room was like, and you know, the episode where it's like, we're in the POV of a 12 monkey acolyte, like one of the red masks, like what's their life like? Like, <laughs> right. just right. Right. around, Titan in robes, oh, like, yeah. what, you know? And we actually have discussions like, you know, granted if we, you know, we were 10 episodes at that point, maybe, you know, maybe if we were 13, probably not. But, you know, if we had to do some filler at some point, Like you might've seen an episode where it's a cold open where it's like somebody in like, I don't know, Uruguay in (laughs) 1689 and is suddenly like out farming and shit and then suddenly like Titan appears. Like you might've seen that, you know? Um, And, and we, and, and if we were any good at what we were doing, we would somehow make that feel like an enormous aside and then that character would have evolved into somebody that was pivotal to the mythology. Um, you know, it would have been the one Acolyte like who in a, in, a, in a tense moment, you know, stabs the other guard and lets Cassie go through and you'd be like, what the fuck was that? And then we would have told that story. Um, and, and, and and I think at one point it versions of that. So I think that's interesting. I think Ethan through time, who doesn't yeah. want to see time traveling yeah. James Bond, you know, like, yeah. that yeah. would have been awesome. Um, yeah. Eighth, eighth and third uh, I'm, time I'm is, sure there's is, other ones. Gale, A- Gale. No, hands down. Agent Gale oh, that's, just existing I, uh, that's, in life is the show. That's <laughs> my spin That's my spin-off show, Sean. Like
2: I've always wanted to do noir X-Files with Agent Gale. Like, yeah, I like I like Chris. I, I, I like how you think that's yours. Everybody on the planet yeah. wants to see that show. <laughs> no, I,
1: I, what I mean is I'm calling dibs on it.
2: Um, oh well, I got you i got
1: you. yeah as a i think as a as a graphic novel I mean I've joked about this before and i don't I don't think it would fit into the timeline at all but I just love the idea of doing deacon in the dead city that that, that there is a, a kind of rotting husk of titans sitting in Central Park that needs to be kept away from the people across the river who can't know it's there because they're still going through the story um and the way that the West seven would have to defend weirdly the the skeleton of Titan and keep our guys from defending it. I don't know. There's something I discovering. There's something I've always found interesting about that.
2: I'd go forward, but then, then again, I would, that might just save that for like a show. (laughs) What, what, what happens after. Right.
4: After the epilogue, you mean? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, so does, do the, does the Jones family really never work with time travel again? Is that really Terry, what happens? I Terry know. the T's Metalis. Yeah. I, I I think there's still you, practical you applications. You mean the show where they realize they're
3: stuck in the Red Forest? and Oh, my God. where
0: to go with those guys. <laughs> oh Matrix. Stopped it.
3: Oh, wait. The, you want to do the Matrix? <laughs> All
4: right. Let's do the Matrix. Well, they're doing. They look like they were financially very well off. So <laughs> it, so I'm curious what the doctors Jones have been up to for sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, keep in mind that when you see them with Hannah grown up, that's the future. Yep. Right. Yep. So, you know, yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you all so much for your time. This is oh, really fun hearing you all talk about. About, uh, your craft. So thanks for doing it.
2: I would do the casting space. I, 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 casting space. Uh, oh I yeah. Casting, casting, space. <laughs> casting space. Casting <laughs> <laughs> space.
0: On our next episode, a conversation about production design with John Mott and Justin Craig about the literal world building of 12 monkeys, everything from building a time machine to a time traveling city. Thank you for listening. And until next time, we'll see you soon.